So um, let us now uh, come to the Lord once again in prayer. Father, we thank you that you have given us everything we need, including your good commands, by which we give you our thanks. So with the psalmist we ask, teach us, O Lord, to follow your decrees. Then we will keep them to the end. Give us understanding, and we will keep your law and obey it with all our heart. Enable us to give back to you your word in prayer, in praise, in our daily lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Turn now once again, if you will, to Psalm 116, whether in your Bibles or in your bulletins, uh, on your phones, uh, your iPads, whatever it is that you have. I'm not sure I ever thought I would say that, but, but yeah. Psalm 116, uh, which we're now going to uh, look at, um, having sung it, we're going to consider it in somewhat more detail. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my supplications, because he has inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call upon him as long as I live. The pains of death surrounded me. And the pangs of Sheol laid hold of me. I found trouble and sorrow. Then I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I implore you, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. I was brought low and he saved me. Return to your rest. O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you, for you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, and my feet from falling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed, therefore I spoke. I am greatly afflicted. I said in my haste, all men are liars. What shall I render to the Lord? for all his benefits toward me. I will take up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, truly I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and will call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the Lord's house, in the midst of you, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. Amen. Well, the day we think of as Thanksgiving Day is coming this week. Thanksgiving Day began in 1621 with the pilgrims in New England as a day of giving thanks for the harvest and prayer for the Lord's protection and goodness in a strange land. 
1623, two years later, a day of fasting and prayer in the midst of drought was changed into thanksgiving by the coming of rain during the prayers. The custom caught on. In 1864, President Abraham Lincoln appointed a national day of thanksgiving. But today, Thanksgiving Day brings to the minds of most people thoughts of family gatherings, football games, and food, particularly turkey, a day off from work or school. And that's all. Thanksgiving, to many, is just a meaningless name for a food and fun day. How will you make Turkey Day a day of thanksgiving? Even more to the point, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, we give thanks. How do you give thanks in the Lord's Supper? In 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 18, Paul tells us to give thanks in everything, that is, in all circumstances. Even when you're out of work and the money is running funny, when you've been hit with COVID, the flu, or arthritis, or cancer, no matter what the circumstances, you're to give thanks. And it's important to give thanks because, as Paul goes on to say, this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This is what the Lord wants for us. That raises the question, how do you make every day a day of thanksgiving? That takes you to the basic question, how can I thank the Lord? The psalmist asks that question. How can I thank the Lord? Or as he puts it in verse 12 of Psalm 116, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? As the NIV puts it, how can I repay the Lord for all his goodness to me? It's a question which must be answered for you to live and die in the comfort of belonging to Jesus. The psalmist gives us the answer in some basic instruction. The one who gives, gives thanks has the comfort. So let's look at the psalm to find comfort and learn the three R's of how to be thankful. Realize your trouble recognize your salvation, and repay your Savior. First, realize your trouble. Notice that the psalmist recalls his trouble very well. He says in verse 3, The pains of death surrounded me, and the pangs of Sheol laid hold of me. I found trouble and sorrow. The ESV's translation of the verse captures the emotional sense of the situation. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. 
And the NIV's translation conveys the emotional impact on the psalmist. The cords of death entangled me. The anguish of the grave came upon me. I was overcome by trouble and sorrow. And again in verse 6, he speaks of the time when I was brought low or when I was in great need. He says in verse 8, For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, and my feet from falling. And in verses 10 and 11, he remembers, I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my haste, or dismay, or alarm, all men are liars. Realize your trouble so that you can call for help. The psalmist talks about crying out, calling on the Lord for help in verses 1 and 2. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my supplications, my cries for mercy or favor, because he has inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call upon him as long as I live. And in verse 4, he says, Then I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I implore you, deliver my soul. The word then, in verse 4, is important. It relates verse 4 to verse 3. So we see that you call for help when you're in trouble, or more precisely, when you're in agony. In other words, You realize your trouble well enough to call out, get me through this. Now, it may seem unnecessary to urge you to realize your trouble. You might think that if you got trouble, you'd certainly know it. Right? But it isn't always so. For example, an alcoholic can get in so deep that he doesn't see his problem. He even enjoys it. Mm. I once sat with a man who had been given a year to live because drinking had given him a liver disease. He was drinking beer at the time. And I asked him if it didn't make his condition worse. Shouldn't he stop drinking beer? His response was, Oh, I'll I'll never give up my beer. I love my beer. Sin is like alcoholism or drug addiction. Paul's message in Romans 1 is that we're hooked on sin. Every one of us. And sin is trouble. You can see the trouble with sin in the psalm. Verse 3 paints a picture of the psalmist chained and trapped, entangled and bound up by death. Death is the consequence of sin, as Paul says in Romans 6, verse 23. The wages of sin is death. Death is the bonds of Satan. But death isn't passive like a rope or a chain. Death is active, aggressive against the living. Sickness, which the New King James Version and NIV translate in verse 3 as trouble, and the ESV translates as distress, 
is just a foretaste of death. Sickness attacks the healthy. The word sorrow in verse 3, or as it might be translated, despair or anguish with the ESV, is a word that makes one think of walls moving, closing in, like in the old adventure movies. I think of the first Star Wars movie when they're, they're in the trash compactor, remember? They're trying to stop it with sticks and poles and whatnot. Yeah, the word afflicted in verse 10 means crushed. And haste, dismay, alarm, or disillusion in verse 11 is something that happens. These words describe attacks by sin and death, not merely conditions for which we could neither account nor take responsibility. Do you see what kind of trouble you're in? Do you realize your trouble? Sin is your trouble, and the death it brings, and the addiction to itself that it causes. That's an essential part of the message of the Lord's Supper. No matter what your particular trouble is, sin is at the back of it. Whether it's the consequences of Adam's sin upon, uh, upon the world around us in this present evil age, or the sins of particular people against you in a particular way, or your own sinful nature and behavior, all trouble is rooted in sin. And inevitably our own sinful nature becomes involved in our response to sin. So finally, by the time we realize that we have trouble, we've been tempted to actively sin. Many people think that the Bible is irrelevant to their life and to their problems because they think that their problems have nothing to do with sin. God is not relevant to their problems, they think. They are without hope and without God in the world because they believe that they live in a world of problems with which neither sin nor God has anything to do. But what we often consider our problems are only symptoms of the real trouble, sin. And that's what God has dealt with. Why spend a fortune on tissues for your runny nose when there is a cure for the common cold? Because you only see the runny nose as the problem. Or you don't know a cure for the common cold. Realize your trouble so that you can recognize the certainty of your need and the magnitude of your salvation. You can't say how great my deliverance is if you don't know how great your distress was. That takes us to our second point. Recognize your salvation. The psalmist takes delight in recalling the salvation which the Lord has wrought for him, fashioned for him. He declares in verse 5, Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is merciful. 
The Lord has dealt bountifully with you. The Lord has been good to you, he reminds himself in verse 7. And in verse 12, he asks, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? You don't just gut it out when you haven't asked for help. In any trouble, it's the Lord who preserves. Says verse, uh, verse 6, the Lord preserves the simple. That doesn't just mean uncomplicated. Mm. Right? The fool. We never save ourselves. Nobody. We never save ourselves. But after the trouble is over, when you're sitting in the comfort of your cozy, easy chair in your safe home, it's easy to forget who brought you out, who enabled you to go through it. It's so easy to forget who your preserver is and even to brag about how tough you were. The Lord works for you. As you look at the psalm to recognize your salvation, you see five things that the Lord does that are part of your salvation. First, we see that the Lord hears your pleading. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my supplications because he has inclined his ear, he's bent his ear to me. Therefore, I will call upon him as long as I live, says uh, verses 1 and 2. The Hebrew of verse 2 sounds very up-to-date. It's literally, he bends an ear for me. There's a note of humility in that phrase. The Lord humbles himself to hear us. And you can see why it's humiliating for him to do so. In verse 6, the Lord preserves the simple. The NIV kindly has simple-hearted, simple-minded, silly, foolish, careless, gullible, airheads would be a more accurate translation. It's humble of God to take time for such creatures. The psalmist sees it that way, too. So he remarks in verse 5 that the Lord is gracious, righteous, and merciful. For him to be both righteous toward us and merciful is a wondrous accomplishment that requires nothing less than the death of the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ, as the Apostle Paul points out in Romans 3, verses 25 and 26. In verse 8, we see the second thing that the Lord does. He delivers your soul from death. As Paul says in Romans 8, verses 10 and 11, but if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. How does he do that? Verse 16 says that the Lord loosed my bonds, freed me from my chains. Literally, he opened my bonds, burst the cords that bound me. So like the psalmist, you exchange the bonds of death, as he literally puts it in verse 3, for the bonds of the Lord. 
you take on the chains of life and you're wrapped in the righteousness of Christ. The third thing we see that the Lord does in saving you, again in verse 8, is that He delivers your eyes from tears. This is not to say that you have no more sorrow, that you have no cause for grief, no pain or suffering. But you can claim to be, like the Apostle Paul, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. That's because the Lord gives us the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, who dries your eyes. When Jesus ascended into heaven to sit at his Father's right hand, he sent the Holy Spirit as he had promised. And the Spirit remains with us until that time when Jesus returns and brings to fruit all that he has done. The time is coming when there will be no more tears. The fourth thing we see in the psalm that the Lord does, again in verse 8, is that he delivers you from falling. Jude talks about him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. He lays himself down in the pit to keep you from stumbling into it. That's what Christ did on the cross. And he takes your hand and lifts you up and carries you over it, the pit, all the way from one side to the other. That's what Christ continues to do, ruling over us from heaven. In verse 9, we see the fifth thing that the Lord does. He brings you into his presence in the lands of the living. That's why he keeps you from stumbling, from falling, so that you may walk before him. Jesus promises in John 14, verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. You fellowship with him forever. Without fear of death, without fear of being cut off from him forever. The psalmist says in verse 15, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. The word used in the Greek translation of precious there is the same word used in 1 Peter 1, verse 19. You are redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. That's why your death is precious in the Lord's sight. You were bought at a price. The price was the blood of Jesus, who was sold for 30 pieces of silver so that he might be put to death, but of whom the assembly in heaven sings, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power. By his death, he purchased your life. So if you belong to Jesus, your death is not an eternal one. 
It's not a separation from your Lord and his loving care and fellowship because you have already, already, hear this, already entered into eternal life. You can say, where, O death, is your sting? (laughs) Your death is a costly, precious one because you died in Christ. It's the Lord who saves. He works on our behalf. Nothing you do, nothing you do. You got that? Nothing you do contributes one iota. That's a Hebrew letter that looks like a comma. Not one iota to your salvation or to your savability or your worthiness to be saved. Nothing. All of this, the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, his absolutely total rescue and provision for his people, our complete dependence upon him, our fellowship with him and with one another, all of this is pictured and proclaimed, represented to us in the Lord's Supper. But your salvation requires faith as a response. The Holy Spirit works in us, fashions in us, faith to respond to the gospel. Not as a once-for-all-time occurrence, but as an ongoing work in us, the faith by which we continually draw comfort and strength in the middle of trouble and problems. So the Lord's Supper is addressed to faith. It's as you participate by faith in the work of God in Christ that you benefit from the Lord's Supper's comfort and encouragement and warning and presentation of the gospel in memorable form. The psalmist highlights faith in verse 10. And you can see why. It's by faith that you call upon the Lord for help when he hears you. I believed, he says in verse 10. Therefore I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. So in verse 4 he says, then I called upon the name of the Lord. And in verse 13, I will take up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. And again in verse 17, I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and will call upon the name of the Lord. It's by faith that you're united to Jesus in his death chains. As Paul explains in Romans 6, verse 4, we were buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. It's by faith that you take comfort from the Comforter. When you hear verse 7, return to your rest, O my soul. For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. It's by faith that you can say with verse 8, You have delivered my eyes from tears. It's by faith that you 
walk obediently without falling, holding the hand of Jesus so that you can say, you have delivered my feet from falling. It's by faith that you fellowship with the Lord, united to him in life, so that you can say with verse 9 that you will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Now, having so great a salvation from such a great trouble and enjoying that salvation by faith, like the psalmist in verse 12, you want to repay your Savior. How are you going to do that? That's our third point. How are you going to repay your Savior? Well, first, in verses 14, 17, and 18, the psalmist talks about paying vows and offering a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Generally, what that means for you is keep your word and praise the Lord. Amen. Right? Yeah. The Apostle Paul tells the Corinthians, it is written, I believe, therefore I have spoken. With that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. All this is for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. But the psalmist is talking about vows and offerings in a more particular sense. He's talking about what he's going to do in the temple. In this context, what he has in mind would be peace offerings, which are offered after, in addition to, Sin offerings. They assume that reconciliation with God has taken place, past tense. Jesus is your sin offering and your peace offering. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. We give thanks through Jesus. We see the second part of the answer to the question, how can I repay the Lord, in verse 16. O Lord, truly, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You are to serve the Lord, to be his slave, chained to him. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. That's what it means when the psalmist says in verse 1, I love the Lord. But your service isn't a repayment like settling a debt. In the words of the 17th century hymn, number 337 in the uh, Trinity hymnal, Trinity Psalter hymnal, for me, kind Jesus, was thine incarnation. Mm -hmm. Thy mortal sorrow 
and thy life's oblation. Thy death of anguish and thy bitter passion for my salvation. Therefore, kind Jesus, since I cannot pay thee, I do adore thee and will ever pray thee Think on thy pity and thy love unswerving, not my deserving. That takes you to verse 7 and what you observe there. Repentance. It is literally, as in the New King James Version and the ESV, return to your rest. What does it mean to return to your rest? Jesus is your rest. You rest in Him. To return to your rest is to return to Jesus. We call that repentance. It means you stop trusting in yourself or something else and consequently worrying And you trust in Jesus and rest. That's what you're called upon to do in the Lord's Supper. That's how you serve Him and worship. You repent. You realize your trouble, your sin. And you recognize your salvation. And you return to your Savior and rest. That is how you repay Him. You respond to him in faith. That's how you serve him. That's how you wait upon the Lord. But that is only possible because as you come to the table, he has already served you. He waits on you at the table. And the host of the feast not only serves the feast, we feed upon him. He is the offering in which we now share a foretaste by faith. The psalmist demonstrates that faith, that trust in verse 2, in verse 13, and again in verse 17, in each of which he says, I will call upon the name of the Lord. The only vows the psalmist actually makes are to call on the Lord, receive his help, and proclaim his praise. Mm. To call on the name of the Lord is to trust in him. That's the vow you're called upon to make and keep, to trust in Jesus. In every time, trust the Lord. How do you thank the Lord on Thanksgiving Day or any day? Realize your trouble, sin, Recognize your salvation, the Lord's work, and repay, respond to your Savior, repent. You get three R's in that last one. Return unto your rest, your fortress, your God, and return, and return, and return. Make Him your rest. Partake of the rest the salvation offered to you in Jesus and displayed in the Lord's Supper. There is no other thanks 
you can give. Let's pray. Amen. Father, we thank you that you have caused us to realize our, our trouble as sinners. We thank you that you've rescued us and caused us to recognize your salvation. We thank you that you cause us to return to you and to the Lord Jesus by spirit-wrought faith. We thank you, Father, that we can make no payment but to thank you, which you enable us to do by faith in Christ. Continue to enable us to do so, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.